Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have provided for us your word. And I pray for me, for us, that we would hear it and it would have its perfect work in us. Um, And Father, help us to have your heart uh, concerning all the people in the world. And that we would uh, react as you do and as you would like us to. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn please to First Timothy in chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 uh, through 7. First Timothy chapter 1 through 7. Just in looking at my watch, I realized I have it. It's a quarter of eight, so I have an hour and 45 minutes to preach. Perhaps I can change that. There we go. That'll make you feel better. All right, there you go. Good. First Timothy in chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, we've been working through this 1950-year-old letter that this one who is an apostle of Jesus, this one named Paul, an apostle of Jesus, meaning that he was not only a follower of Jesus, not only a disciple of Jesus, but one sent out by Jesus. And in these days of these early apostles, we know that they were given this calling and this gift to be able to write that which is the very word of God. And so we have this letter, which is one God breathed, really. So as Timothy received it from Paul, really it was coming from God. So that as we read it, it isn't simply a letter from Paul to Timothy, but it's also a letter from God to us. And so this apostle is writing this letter, which is why we pay so much attention to it. It comes from God. And it came originally to this young man named Timothy, who Paul referred to as his son in the faith. So he showed the relationship between the two. Paul had great concern, great love, great affection for this young man. And he was was teaching Timothy how it is that Timothy was to conduct life in the church in Ephesus, because Timothy was the pastor in the church in Ephesus. Do you remember from some weeks ago now, as we thought about the theme of this letter, we realized that uh, Paul said he's writing to Timothy uh, so that the church would know how to conduct itself as the very household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. And so that really governs everything. Paul says, how is it that you're to conduct yourselves as the very dwelling place of God, the very place where God has his throne, if you will, among you? And how are you going to live as those who have been entrusted with the very gospel of Jesus, the very truth that comes from God? You've been entrusted with that. You're a pillar and a support of that truth. You're to, you're to guard it. You're to protect it. You're to live it. And indeed, you're to proclaim it. For all the world, you've been entrusted, church, with this gospel, with this truth. It's been given to you. Now, now, now how will you live knowing that? 
Well, the, the letter begins, and we would expect it in some sense to begin this way. The letter begins with Paul telling Timothy, Now, if there are those who are teaching that which is false, or those who are teaching that which is inconsistent with this truth that you've been entrusted with, this truth that's been handed down to you from these apostles, from Jesus himself, if you will, but if, you, if there are any in your midst in Ephesus who are teaching anything contrary to this truth, then you need to correct them. And if they won't be corrected, you need to have them leave. Because this truth must be protected, it must be guarded. If we don't have this truth, we don't really have anything. And so Paul lays that out. And, and we would expect that given the fact that the church is a pillar and a support of truth. And thus truth must be protected by the church. Timothy as the pastor has the charge to do that. And at the very end of that section, the very end of chapter 1, we realize that Paul gives to Timothy another charge, if you will, or a command. And he says to Timothy, now, I need you to fight this good fight. It's a good fight. It's a moral fight. It's a fight that if won, everything is won. If you lost, if everything is lost, it's a good fight. You need to fight it. But it is indeed a fight. There is opposition against you. There's up against opposition against the church. There's those that come against this truth to try to distort it, dilute it, and so forth. And so, Timothy, you need to fight this good fight. And you do so by holding faith, continuing to believe that which is true, holding faith, and a good conscience. So not only holding, believing that which is true, but, but if you will, approving it and living it out. You must continue to trust and obey. And if, if you reject a good conscience, if you cease to approve that which is true, that which is right, and you cease to live that out, and you cease in, 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 if you cease to live that out and, and cease to live a repentant life, to turn from your sin and, and come back, if you will, to that which is true, then your faith will be sunk, it will be shipwrecked, just as it was with these two men that Paul lists and ends up having to cast out of the church. So, so that's where we are, all right? That's where we are. The church, we know what the church is, we know what the church has in this gospel of truth, we know uh, what, what, what we're to do in terms of guarding and protecting the truth. And so then Paul uh, starts out like this in chapter 2. He says, first of all, now he said, well, wait a minute, this is really second, isn't it? You've already started, and now you say, first of all, you, you've already got us all going on these false teachers and how we're to protect the truth and, and all of that. And now you say, first of all, and you get a sense that Paul's kind of circling back. That the presenting issue in Ephesus was these false teachers. And so, sort of out of the chute, he, he, he said that he's going to um, uh, tell Timothy to, to deal with that. That's the presenting issue. But, but now that that's sort of, at least at this point, he's going to come back to it. But now that this is sort of taken care of, he, he goes back. Now, let me, let me sort of start over. Let me speak to you as of what is of first importance. That is, assuming that you've guarded the truth, assuming that, that all is well in that regard, what would I tell you? And here's what I would tell you as a church that has this truth. He says, I want you to pray. That's a bit surprising. I would think he would say, I want you to obey it. Or he would say, I want you to proclaim it. He'll say all of that. All of that is true. But he says in the first instance, or first of all, that is of first importance, I I want you to pray. I want you to speak to God. That's what praying is. Praying isn't listening to God so much. We listen to God as we read the scripture. When we pray, we talk. 
when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he says, this is what, when you pray, you're to say. And so when we talk about praying, we're talking about talking. We're talking about speaking to God. Now, that doesn't mean that in the midst of our praying, things don't pop into our minds, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, His Word, and so forth. And so we come to understand things, and in that sense are listening to God. But, but praying, really, is, is, is speaking to God, as we'll see. He lists out what that means to pray. And He says, I want you to pray for all people. Don't, in a sense, leave out any kind of person. Don't leave out anyone. And I want you to pray, as he puts it, with supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And he says, even for kings, even for those in authority. Because, you see, Paul wants to to, to say, if you have the truth, ultimately, you see, what you're going to do with this truth is make it known. And so, in order to make it known, if that's going to be successful, you're making it known, you need to pray. You need to pray even for kings. You need to pray for all people to be able to to receive it. And there's a reason that you're to pray for all people. It's because God desires something for all people. He desires all people to be saved and to, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And there's a reason why God desires that, because He's our Savior. And in and, and, and being our Savior, we realize that He has made it so that... God, the Son, Christ Jesus, is mediator and the only mediator between God and and people. So pray for all people. God desires all people to be saved. And there is this one mediator in God, God the Son, who is the ransom for all people. There isn't any other way other than by the ransom of Jesus that all people, any person, would be saved. And so he says, I want you now to realize you need to pray. You need to pray. That's this work, if you will, that precedes even the pronouncement. We've been given a great commission, but we've also been given a great intercession, you see, that we're to pray. Pray for all people. Now, when Paul says to pray for all people, that, that doesn't sound so surprising to us, but it would have sounded perhaps surprising to them. A bit new, you see... In, in the early church, in the first century, of, as the church uh, was beginning, there was great questions about who this gospel was really for and who could really come under this gospel. And it seems odd to us, although I think that's a bit hypocritical because it shouldn't, because we, we fall into similar traps, if you will, of, of keeping the gospel to ourselves and not thinking it's really for those kind of people. We may think it is, but we don't really think of them as, as coming into this gospel, if you will. But, 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 they, but they wondered. And, and there was this whole idea, this whole question, could Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, be saved? And, and you can see how, how that could have uh, some bearing because, because Israel ancient Israel, was kind of the guardian of this truth for all of those generations. And, and Jesus was the very fulfillment of, of this covenant that God had made with Israel. And so the question would always be, well, is this still just for Israel? Do you have to become Jewish, if you will? Do you have to enter into Judaism in order to really receive the blessing that Jesus has brought, this blessing of forgiveness, this, this new covenant? And, and Paul would say, no, 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 I've been given charge of this mystery that all along we should have known that, 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 that this is not only for Israel, but also for Gentiles as well. But, but that was still kind of a new thing. You remember how difficult it was for God to communicate that to the early church. He had to give Peter a vision. 
and then tell Peter that, uh, that, that, that he needed to go to the Gentiles. And Peter said, no, I can't do that. And he said, no, 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 this is for them as well. And the Holy Spirit came upon the household of Cornelius, convincing Peter, oh, they received it just like we did. It's for them too. And, of course, then the theology was built back by the apostles that said, remember the promise made to Abraham. The promise made to Abraham that that he would be blessed in such a way that from his seed, all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And yes, it became quite particular in the Old Covenant, but, but when Jesus would come, we'd see that blossoming forth in this gospel to go throughout the whole world. But of course, the disciples of Jesus didn't, didn't take it to the whole world so quickly. It, it took some incentive. When there was persecution that came in Jerusalem, they scattered. And as they scattered, the scripture said they spread this word. And in, in Greek, the, the word could be, talked, could be said like this, that they sort of gossiped about Jesus. I mean, it just sort of spread out of them. They, they just talked about him, you know, see. And, and that's how it spread uh, in the first instance. But still, there was question, you remember... When, church write, when Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he, he kind, of, kind of points out Peter and he said, Peter, you know better, but here's what you're doing. You're eating only with our Jewish brothers and you're not eating with the Gentiles. And, and Peter, don't you know? Uh, this gospel is for both. That we're one now. And so you shouldn't separate yourself out of that. And so, so you see that when you pray for all people, it would be a startle to some in the church in Ephesus. You mean pray for Gentiles? Because there seems to be a Jewish teaching contingent in, uh, in Ephesus, where Paul writes in chapter 1 about how they're teaching the law, but they don't understand it. And then, and then there seems to be another group of people too. It might have been a form of early Gnosticism, um, this sense of that only for this special enlightened group who are way beyond everyone else. And this special enlightened group is this relationship with God. In fact, you know, Paul uh, speaks to them in the, the very last couple of verses in this letter to Timothy. He writes, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. These special ones who think they really have it. They would think, why should we pray for all people? We should just pray for people like us who have this knowledge. And Paul saying, no, no, I want you to pray for, for all people, all kinds of people. There shouldn't be any people that you should not pray for, especially concerning receiving the gospel of truth, coming to a knowledge of the truth and being saved. It's for all people. And, you know, we read that and we go, yeah, that's, that's certainly true, but, but we really do need to come to grips with our own prejudices. I don't think I have to rehearse the history of our own culture, our own society, our own country, and realize that for hundreds of years there were people whom some people would never pray for to really receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There would be people that some would not pray for to come into the church and to be part of the church of Jesus Christ because of prejudice. And here we need to realize that there isn't anyone who's beyond the saving grace of our Lord Jesus. If he can save the likes of you and me, he can save anyone. In fact, he says, I desire to save them. In fact, one of the passages we read in our responsive reading this morning out of the, out of the book of Revelation is, is the declaration of God concerning the work of our Lord Jesus. Uh, and he says of, of Christ, he says, 
For you he was slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so the actual work of Christ was to save all kinds of people, ransom them, pay the penalty for them. And so, so you see, Paul says, I want, in the midst of having this truth that you're going to take out, I want to make sure that you understand that you're to pray for everybody, all kinds of people. Don't exclude any kind of person regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their social standing, regardless of of their past, what they've done, who they've been. Pray for them. And then he says, not only that, but pray for kings. Now think about that. In essence, Paul was saying, pray for the likes of Nero, who kills us. Pray for him as well. Now, he gives a special kind of note for praying for kings and for those in authority. Look how he puts it. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, he's saying, listen, part of the charge of the church with this commission of discipling nations, part of the charge of the church of having this truth and proclaiming it is also to join with God and rule and reign in in such a degree as to pray that God will work in the hearts of kings to cause them to rule as God has ordained them or instructed them or commanded them really to rule. You know, that God has instituted civil government for particular reasons. You can read about it in Romans chapter 13 or 1 Peter in chapter 2. And when, 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 when the apostles are calling us to submit to those in authority. And he says, he says, because God has established these authorities for a good purpose. And that is to maintain peace and to protect us. Now, they don't always do that. And when they don't do that, Paul is saying, it makes it really much more difficult for us to to live out our faith in a way that is seen by others and to take this faith and to proclaim it to others. He says, we should pray that there's peace, that these rulers grant peace, so that we can live out godly lives so people can see our lives and come to faith in Christ. Now, the danger for us is that we often use the peace that the authorities under God provide for us to live selfish, distanced lives. We don't use this peace as an opportunity to live a godly life so that others would see it and be drawn to Christ. We often use it as a life to just spend on ourselves in leisure, forgetting about the reason that we've been given this peace. And Paul says, listen, when there's peace, and Paul would know this better than anyone, when there's peace, you get to go places and you get to tell people about Jesus. How many people, how many places was Paul run out of? And he never quite, in his mind, probably got finished. But he had to leave fast because the authorities were after him. And he says, listen, pray for those people. I still have places to go. Pray for those people so in authority so that when I come into the cities, I'll have opportunity to speak freely of Christ and they won't throw me out and stone me. Do you know how hard it is to speak of Christ with a swollen lip? 
It would be much better if I didn't have that. You know how, how difficult it is to speak of Christ when, when I have one eye on the door? And so pray for peace. I mean, be reasonable people, right? He says, God uses means. Now, that doesn't mean at all that if there isn't peace that the gospel can't go out. It doesn't mean if there isn't peace that, that God can't use that in a particular way in order to, to get the gospel out and so forth. God isn't going to be thwarted. But Paul says, listen, you, church, you've been given this, 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 this stewardship of this truth and you're to proclaim it ultimately. So pray for all kinds of people that they receive it. Pray that the, 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 those in authority will give grant peace so that you can live this out. So people can really see it. So you can build community, even amongst yourself, so people can see what that means, how, how the church loves each other. And then, and then so that you can live that out publicly and you can proclaim that out publicly so that, so that you're not considered to be a criminal of the state and all of that and disparaged. But rather, people would see it. And we prayed for the folks to go this morning to Renosa. Uh, we know some danger in Mexico and all of that. Gals cautious, we're cautious, we believe there's a safe environment to go and all of that but, but yet we still pray that God will grant them safety so that that opportunity to do the work to which they've been called to do when they get there and, and show Christ in a, in, in a way that's unencumbered by, by anything and so, so we pray for that and Paul says yes, that's, pray for the authorities because God has instituted those authorities in order to provide in order to provide this peace Clement of Rome, who was a early, late, I'm sorry, late first century a church father, uh, had this prayer he, of, to, for authorities. He says, grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, that they may blamelessly administer the government which you have given them. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight, so that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority which you um, have them, they may experience your mercy. In other words, he's saying, not only just pray that they'd be ruled in such a way as to grant peace, but that they too would be a recipient of your mercy to pray for the salvation of kings and those in authority. You realize when, 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 when this message went to Timothy, it was quite likely that there wasn't any, there weren't any authorities, any kings who were Christians. So the prayer to pray for these ones who are persecuting you, that they would stop and bring peace, was a, an important one. And notice how other to pray, how Paul says to pray. Now, he uses four words. The first three are really very, very close in meaning. It's, it's difficult to know how to separate supplications, prayers, intercessions. We understand thanksgivings. We understand we get to that point. We're to be thankful to God, thankful that he's called us to pray, thankful that he's at work, thankful that we can, we can come to him, thankful that he's called us to be with him in this, this enterprise of making disciples and, and, and all of that, and, and thankful to him because we know that if any of this works, it's really of his doing. But, but supplications, prayers, intercessions, uh, the fact that Paul piles these words on each other could simply mean just to say pray I mean really pray but but it seems uh, there's a bit of a nuance here all of them in relation to praying for instance this this notion of supplication has in it this this notion of need that there's a real need and that a person realizes this need and knows who can supply or satisfy the need and thus goes to that person. A supplicant is one who makes requests on the basis of particular need. 
And so when we make supplication, we're, we're, we're saying, yes, there is, in fact, a particular need. There's a need here. There's a need for people to come to a knowledge of the truth and, and to be saved, to come into a saving understanding, a saving knowledge of belief in Jesus in such a way that they'd be reconciled to God. That's a, a need. And so Paul says to us, in a sense, you know that need that people have. So pray. And then he uses the word prayer, which is the general expression for praying. But it's interesting. This particular Greek word that Paul uses for prayer is only used in the context of God. For instance, one can make supplication of another human being. You can ask another person for something. One can make intercession on behalf of one person to another person. But this word prayer, the way it's used, it, it is only in reference to God. And so what Paul is saying is remember when, you're, when you know the need and you're asking it to be met, you're asking God. Because he's the only one who can meet this need. And, and, and he's the one who will be glorified in meeting this need. So really it's all about him. It's all wrapped around him. And then he says, not only make supplications, prayers, but also intercessions. Now to make intercession means that you are going to God, in this case, on behalf of another. On behalf of another whose need you empathize, you sympathize with. An intercessor, to be one who intercedes for another in a biblical sense, is one who knows the need and feels it, empathizes, sympathizes. Uh, the scripture speaks, for instance, uh, of Jesus as the one who uh, intercedes for us. For instance, in Hebrews in chapter 4, we read this, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we were yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we realize that Jesus is this sympathetic high priest. A high priest is one who intercedes on behalf of another. And he is one who gets it one who understands the need, one who feels the need, one who empathizes with the need. And so when we pray through Jesus, it's quite appropriate to say, Jesus, you know exactly how I feel. Jesus, you know exactly what I need. And for him to respond and say, yes, I do. He knows it better than we do. He feels it more than we do. And he says, yes, I do. So, so he is our high priest. The Holy Spirit, we are told, intercedes for us as well. For instance, in, in Romans, in chapter 8, um, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray uh, for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the heart hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so this, this expression with groanings too deep for words, you get the sense that the Holy Spirit, if I could say this reverently, really gets it, really understands our need so much more than we do. 
I mean, there are times when we pray flippantly. There are times when we pray moderately, seriously. There are times when we pray in a perfunctory manner. There are times, though, when we really pray. And when we really play, pray, means we really know the need. And we really know that God is the only one who can supply that. And we really know that if he doesn't supply it, we or whomever we're praying for is really sunk. And that's when we really pray. And we could say we pray, though it may be with real words, we may pray with groanings. We understand what that means, where that's coming from. And this is the Spirit of God who intercedes for us. Prays like that because he always gets it. He always understands. He always knows the need. And so again, when we're praying, we pray to Jesus, through Jesus, and we say, Jesus, you know how I feel. He says, yes. And then we say, please, Holy Spirit, help my praying. And he says, well, of course. I know exactly how to pray. And I know exactly the intensity. I know the need. My suspicion, perhaps sometimes, the Holy Spirit says, that's not that important, Bill. It doesn't matter if the guy makes that free throw, right? doesn't really matter so no 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 I don't have any groanings for that but when you're pleading for the soul of another the spirit says I have groanings for that I know that need and so Paul says that we're to to pray like that we're to pray that is our request directed to God because he really is the only one who can, who can do this. He's really the only one who can save. And, 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 and he says, I want you to, to, to pray supplications. You're making these requests. There is a need. I want you to intercede. I want you to, to fall in with this, this need, this person, and really get it and understand it, empathize uh, with them. And I want you to pray like that. Uh, and he says, and why? I mean, why really? Verse 3 says, this is good. That is, God approves of this kind of praying. It's moral, it's right. This is good, and it's pleasing. The little word pleasing means that God applauds. (laughs) Then he's really happy about that. He says, yes, that's very good. Keep praying like that. This is is good, and, and it's pleasing in the sight of God. The reason it's pleasing the sight of God is because he is our savior. He is the one who saves. And then he says, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, it's the very heart of God to desire, to want to save. Now, that raises questions in the mind of any thinking person, anybody who reads the Bible, anybody who thinks about God at all. You want to say, God... If that's what you desire, then why don't you do it? I mean, if I have a deep desire and I have the ability to bring it about, it gets done pretty much, right? And so, God, here you are, the sovereign one over everything. You're the creator of all that is. And if it is your desire that everyone be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, then why, why don't you? I mean, I mean we've read the Bible. Well, we know what the Bible says about the salvation of human beings. We, we know about this, this thing called our sin that causes us to be dead in trespasses and sins, unable, unwilling to really to respond to God in, in any saving kind of way. And we know that the only way that that's overcome is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's the only way it could be overcome. We're no different than anybody else. We're always asking the question, why is it that we believe and someone else doesn't? We simply don't know, other than God must have done something. And as we come to the scripture, we see that that answer is consistent with what we read that there is this new birth that's 
given to us, enabling us to perceive, to see the kingdom of heaven. We know the scripture that says that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that we may be holy and blameless in his sight. Uh, we know that those whom God has uh, has um, uh, uh, foreknown he predestined and those he predestined he called and those he called he justified and those he justified he glorifies we get that we know that and we say okay god if that's your desire for all people then why aren't all saved and of course the answer to that is i don't know there must be something in god that's important that in some sense causes him to not save everyone. We could say it's a manifestation of his justice, and yet he pours out his justice in Jesus and is glorified by that. So, so I, don't, I don't really have an answer for that one, frankly. But there's something here, though. I mean, Paul is a better theologian than I. He wrote all this other stuff that I've been quoting. And, and so he, he gets, he understands. He, I, I don't know if he had a smile on his face when he wrote this. and said, you know, in the year 2011, there's going to be this old preacher guy that's going to be confounded by this sentence. So what's here? What's God really want us to know? And I think this. He wants us to know his heart. You know, when the scripture speaks of God's plan before the creation of the world, He doesn't talk about the fact that he's going to get to condemn people to hell. He talks about his plan to save. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He doesn't say, well, he chose others then so he could condemn them. You see, that isn't the picture of God. That isn't the heart of God. That, that comes along with it, and I'll let God explain that when we get there and all of that. He can, he can defend himself on that. I don't need to defend him. But, but, but you see, but, but I know that the very heart of God, what he reveals to us, is that his heart is to save. That's what he wants us to be thinking about him. God isn't like a little boy who takes flies and enjoys pulling their wings off them. You know, putting them in a candle flame, watching them burn. That isn't, that isn't the very heart of God, you see. It's true he does condemn. It's true that there is justice. It is true that those who don't believe in Jesus die sins unforgiven thus. It is true that God has the power and authority to save, and he does. And what he wants us to know about himself, what he wants us to be thinking about him, what he wants us to to know of his heart is this, that he doesn't, as he speaks to the prophet through the prophet Ezekiel, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. And so he's always calling to repentance. Always calling to repentance. Calling all people to repent. And he says, whoever whoever will uh, come, I'll give you life. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So it's for all. He says, this invitation is for all. All the details of how that gets worked out and who God saves and who God works in and who God doesn't and all of that is up to him, not up to us. But he he says, I want you to be thinking like this. Your attitude is when you look at a person, isn't to think, I bet God wants to send them to hell. Your attitude when you look at a person, no matter who they are, is to say, I bet God could save them. And I bet God weeps over their soul. And how Jesus can weep over Jerusalem in one moment and not save everybody in Jerusalem, I don't know. 
But that's the sense of it, isn't it? That when we look at another, we're not to be thinking, oh, I bet God can't wait to condemn them. Rather, oh, God desires for them to be saved so that my attention to them, my prayer for them, is that they repent, is that they come to a knowledge of the truth. And that works in me, you see, then, to do whatever it is that I've been called to do in order to bring that about. First, to pray for the king that I could have peace or that I could share. First, that their hearts would be changed so that they'd be able to receive this gospel. But you see, that's the attitude that we're to have. We're to pray, of course. He says, for all people. For that's the very desire of God. In fact, he says, it's the very nature of God. Because there's one God. God is unified in this. There, there isn't like, like, like all these different things. And there's one God. Just one. And, and in God, he says, there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. See, when the scripture says that there's one God, that just says it's, 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 we're, we're monotheistic. We believe in one God. And the question could be asked, well then, in this one God, perhaps there is many ways that we can be reconciled to him. Perhaps there's the way of Buddhism. Perhaps there's the way of Hinduism. Perhaps there's the way of Mormonism. Perhaps there's the way of, of, of um, uh, Islam. Perhaps there's a, the way of everybody's way or anybody's way. He says, no, 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 no. That isn't the way that it is. There is one God and one go-between. And that's the man, Christ Jesus. And he's our go-between because he is God-man. He can mediate perfectly because he represents both parties perfectly. He represents God perfectly. He represents us perfectly. He is in himself the the very mediator. It all meets in him. I don't know if you've ever been in a process of mediation, but there's always the question, regardless of how good the mediator is, who is this mediator really for? A good mediator is supposed to be for both, but let's face it, we're humans, and it's really hard to be that. Often we have someone who represents us, and then we, the other party has somebody who represents them. Why do we do it that way very often? Well, because we don't trust anybody in the middle. Well, this is one we can trust. God the Father can trust him. God the Father says, go and make peace. Go and do all that I need to have done in order to make peace. And so he does. So he comes and he lives this perfect life on the behalf of those he's representing on earth. And he comes and pays for the sin of those who have sinned against God. And so all that, you see, is taken care of. So he represents God perfectly. He represents us perfectly as well. And so when Jesus shakes his own hand, it's all done. He's shaking it on behalf of God. He's shaking it on behalf of, of us. And so the apostle says, listen, the reason to pray for all people is that there's only one Savior. There's only one hope for them. It's only in this one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And Paul says, my very life is testimony of this. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. Paul's apostleship was always being questioned by people. And he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In other words, I've been sent to those nobody ever thought would get this message. 
And so pray even for the Gentiles. Pray for all kinds of people. And he says, you ought to be able to do this, you know. You ought to be able to do this if you know the heart of God. You ought to be able to do this if you know the needs of human beings. And you are one. You ought to be able to do this if you desire the glory of God because he's the only one you can save and he's worth it. In other words, he's worth the worship that comes from all these people who come to faith in him. He's worth all of that. It's for his glory. And and you ought to be able to do this because you should be able to sympathize with the needs of those who are lost. How can any of us look at anyone and think they're beyond the saving grace of Jesus when we ourselves have been saved? And you may think, well, that's a despicable character. Really? None is beyond it, you see. And the invitation of this gospel is to go really to all people. So the question is, how do we pray? Well, he's told us how to pray for kings so that there be peace, so that we can do the work to which he's called us. Will we always have peace? No, obviously not. And and it, it doesn't always mean that It doesn't mean that if there isn't peace, then we're completely out of hope because the gospel will go forth in just different ways. But he's saying, listen, be reasonable. This is the better way. But then to pray for people. We know, you know, I know, if you're a believer in Christ, the hearts of people. You know that the scripture says that people are dead in their trespasses and sins. Thus we know that when the gospel message is given out, what it must do is raise the dead. What it must do is give life where there is no life. And you and I both know that we, in and of ourselves, are incapable of bringing that life. We also know that the individual who's hearing this gospel is unable to bring that life in themselves. We must know that that comes from God. And so we pray. Okay, God, I know what we're supposed to do. Give it out. But if it's going to work, you've got to do something here. So we pray. As Ezekiel spoke, he said, from a promise of God of the new covenant, that the heart of stone would be taken out, the heart of flesh would be put in, heart of flesh breathing one that's, that, that's warm, that's alive. And so we pray that for people, for all people to pray. When I come up against someone who doesn't know Christ, and I'm praying for them, I pray, God, will you please take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh? I'll tell them the gospel. But in the midst of telling them, unless you do that work, it'll just fall on deaf ears, right? Or the prophet Jeremiah. The, prophet of the, new, the promise of the new covenant was that, that God would write his law upon our minds and hearts. And I say, okay, God, do that. Please change mind, change heart. So when this message comes, when this information comes, they'll be able to believe it. Because you realize that coming to faith in Christ isn't simply a matter of information. There are all kinds of people in the world who can take a multiple choice test on what the evangelical gospel is and pass it, who do not believe Because you see, belief ultimately is a moral issue. It's a right and wrong thing. It's a pleasing to God, not pleasing to God thing. It's a moral thing. And so in order for that to be overcome, God has to do a work. And so we pray for them. 
We pray that God would give new life just as Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about being born again. And you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Lydia in the book of Acts, the scripture says that her heart was opened by God. He opened her heart that she might believe. And so we pray that God would open hearts. In the language of Jesus, we pray that, that he would give ears to hear so that people would be able to receive it. That, you see, is how we pray. We pray that God would do that work completely. Not just sort of send someone with information that's important, not just simply send someone with the gospel that's important, but also that God would do that complete work in them. And to plead with God on behalf of his own heart to say, God, you're the one who said you desire people to be saved thus. And will he save everyone? No. But we pray that which is consistent with what he's revealed to us. We pray that which is consistent with what he's revealed to us about his heart. And we trust him in all things. That's why we're to pray not only with supplication, not only prayers, not only intercessions, but also with thanks. To say, God, I will be content with how you work in this person's life. Now, I may not be content with it, really in my soul to a glory, because I'm going to keep after you, because this might be one I really love. But I'm going to pray like this, that you might save them. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, this is the posture of the church, this is the attitude of the church for those that are outside the church, and we're to pray for them. Now, when the scripture says, of course, that we're to pray for all people, that's a bit daunting. And so on the one hand, you can just do what I did when I was a little kid. And before I had to go to you know, my bedtime prayers, I would just say, God, bless all the people of the world. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it's better to be a bit more specific generally. Right Now, that's a nice thing if that's your heart. But, but, but we do pray, we know, in sort of concentric circles, out, outgoing circles. We pray for those who are close to us as well. We should. We have a stewardship, a responsibility in the context of friendship, in the context of family, to pray for those closest to us. We know those needs. We empathize most. We, we can intercede on their behalf. God has given them to us. We have to trust that there are other congregations in the city and other Christians throughout the world who, who pray for various ones. And, and, and so prayer gets done that way from people who care for one another. But we mustn't really stop there because if we do, then we end up becoming very closed from the rest of the world. And so it's wise for us as we're driving through our neighborhoods to notice people. And you may not see people, you may see houses, but to realize that in those houses are real people and to pray for them. And then as we're shopping, Paul says we're to pray without ceasing. Now, we always think we're to pray for help all the time and pray for our needs to be met and all of that, and that's probably true. But to pray without ceasing for those who are in our communities as we, as we walk by them. To be aware of that, to intercede on their behalf. To intercede then for people in the news, to intercede then for people throughout the world. We have missionaries who are in various places. You know people doing missions in various places. Don't neglect praying for them, you see. We do all of that. And we pray these prayers of supplication because of the need to be reconciled to God and to pray to God and and to intercede before them on their behalf because we know because we know what it must be to be lost. And so we pray for them. I trust that as a congregation, this is true for us, that this is the very attitude of our 
minds if it's not, and I confess it's not always mine. We must repent. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that we would be like this. That we would have your heart, Father. That we too would desire all people to be saved. To the degree that we haven't, we pray you would forgive us and grant to us grace to be concerned for the souls of others. Yes, those closest to us, but even those not. That we wouldn't ever have in our minds that any could ever, would ever be excluded from the saving grace of our Lord Jesus. Simply because of something that's true of them. Because we know, Father, that you haven't excluded us. We do pray, Father, for those in authority over us. We do pray for our president and our vice president and senators and representatives, our governor and those who represent us in in state government and our mayor and our city council and all of that. We pray for them that they would righteously pursue that which you've called them to do, which is to bring peace, which is to protect, which is to do that which is good. And we pray that, Father, so that we may continue to live in peace so that we can live out our lives in such a way that people would see Christ. Forgive us when we've simply used the peace that we have to spend it upon ourselves and not to see it as a blessing through which we can openly and honestly live and share our faith. Enable us to live, Father, in our respective places in such a way that we're respectful to those in authority over us and yet still have opportunity to live out the gospel. Father, we pray for those who do missions. We've prayed for Al and his team as they go to Reynosa, and we continue to do that. We pray for uh, our time with um, Family Promise this week that we can uh, help those in need in such a way that they'll know Christ. Father, we give you thanks that we have the freedom to do that, that we're able to use this facility uh, to house people who are homeless. We, pray, we thank you that we have the opportunity to give our lives in this way. The leisure time, the time away from work that we can actually serve others. So we're grateful for all of that. We pray that you would use this week in a way that brings you glory. May we see everyone who comes through our doors as those whom you would love to save. Father, we give you thanks this week for protecting various ones we love in Japan, the, the hacks. And thank you for protecting Dennis Jewell as he's been traveling there on business. And Father, we do pray for those there that you would keep safe, that we pray for other parts of the world that may be um, uh, receiving various repercussions from this earthquake. But Father, that we would not miss the opportunity uh, to realize that life is fleeting and judgment is real and that we would repent of our sins. 
Father, we give you thanks for calling us to be the church, calling us to, 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 to serve in this way, calling us to be stewards of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I pray that we would be faithful and that you would be pleased. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.